This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I wrote the book, Find Your Happy at Work. Of course, we all know that one barrier to workplace happiness is excess stress. Whether it comes from difficult colleagues or endless deadlines, constant stress can take the fun out of even your dream job. Our guest today wrote a book about it. Dr. Amy Saron is a neuropsychologist, and her book is The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. Amy will explain how stress works and how it can hijack the calm, wise part of our brain and throw us into a frantic state of fight or flight. She'll uh, share tips about how we can catch our stress response before we flip out. And she'll tell us about therapies for addressing chronic stress when meditation or positive self-talk are just not enough. Amy, thanks so much for being here today. I'm so excited about talking with you again. I learned a lot from you and from your book, and I'm thrilled to have you uh, share with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to reconnect. Well, what we're going to focus on today is your book, The Stress Switch, and um, you have a lot of good information to share there. But when I read the book, having met you and spent some time talking with you a few times, I thought, wow, the Amy's personal story, her history and her approach to everything is really the background of the book. And I would love to have you tell us about how your career path has evolved. You didn't start out as a neuropsychologist. You learned a lot of things along the way. And you've been very innovative in your own uh, practice since you have been a neuropsychologist. So would you kind of share, if you would, your, your career story? And of course, I know that includes some personal adventures along the way. Sure. You know, I came into neuropsychology um, in my early 30s. And before that, um, after college, I had sort of meandered around in business development and sales, just kind of following along what I thought um, I should be doing, basically. And, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm pretty successful at this, so I'll keep doing it. But for me, it was just not that fulfilling. It wasn't a great fit. And so I was in my late 20s living in Los Angeles, which is stressful enough of a place, and working for a dot-com startup during the dot-com boom. And subsequently the dot-com crash. And I was just kind of a shred of my former self. You know, I remember being on the phone one night and my mom just really, just really sad and saying, you know what, you don't even sound like you. Your voice just doesn't even sound like it's you. And that kind of jarred me awake a little bit. Like, what am I doing? I just felt like I was on, you know, this, this treadmill every day and every day was sort of Groundhog Day, even though to the outside world, my life was kind of exciting. You know, I worked for WebMD and I worked for a B2B startup and I was, 
in international business development in my 20s and I was getting my MBA, you know, and it was sort of like on this checklist of what should you be doing and what's the prototype of someone who's, you know, killing it in life. That looked good, but my insides were just sort of shriveled up and I was so stressed out. I was having allergy attacks and I was overweight and battling my weight and just all these things. And so I always loved psychology and that was actually my major in college. And I just had kind of had it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I had the courage actually to leave my quote unquote big job. And I took a summer and traveled and decided to go back to graduate school in clinical psychology. And I never looked back. So that was really the, the pivot that, you know, where I smacked my face against the the wall and had to turn in one direction or another because I just couldn't keep going in the direction that I was traveling. And that led me into graduate school and led me into then being fascinated not only with psychology, but neuroscience. And I think those early times in business and innovation and development led me to be able to kind of blend the two. So I don't look at things through the same lens as just, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do the same tried and true things. I'm going to innovate and I'm going to see how we can get better and I'm going to be as efficient as possible in helping my patients and maybe even listeners today, you know, suffer less because we're all suffering more than we need to be. Um, I certainly was at the time, and it's just not necessary. Um, there are amazing things that we can all do to help our lives and not things that add an hour to your day of to-dos or that cost a million dollars either. So there's some very, very simple things that we could all do to improve our lives. And all of that led me to talking to you today. Well, we're going to talk about stress, but we're not just talking about stress generally, because we all know stress can be good. It can help us learn things and innovate and so forth. What you've focused on, as I understand it, is excess stress, the stress that's over the top and is not a good thing. Is that right? That is the focus. And there's a fundamental shift that I ask people to make, and it's really hard. It's very simple, but it's not easy to make this shift because it's it just kind of goes against all the messages of how we think things work. So a stressor is something that happens to you, right? So people will say, oh, well, I have a, you know, I have a crazy mother-in-law, so of course I'm stressed. Well, no, no, no. There's a gap between a stressor uh, and the current events in your life or whatever's happening to you in the moment. But that the stress is actually your body's moment to moment. This happens in milliseconds. Adjustment according to whatever is happening currently in your life. And that's the fundamental difference because you can have someone have, you know, a thousand stressors going on generally in their lives as the background of what's going on in their lives. You know, their mother is sick or, you know, their child is failing school or, you know, they're um, having a really difficult time at work. You know, all those things are just generally in the background. And then you've got the moment to moment what's happening right now. And then you have your body's reaction to it. So the excess stress that I'm talking about is that your body does not have to continually be so reactive to the things that it's automatically been reacting to. And you can't just willfully choose that down, right? How many times do people go, oh, well, you know, I I shouldn't be stressed about this because this or that. And it's like, okay, but you are, you know, intellectually, you may have done some cognitive work around it, but your nervous system is still giving you a stomach ache whenever you think about it, or it's reacting in a certain way. And we can't deny 
that piece and just keep using these old methods over and over again and going, well, I'm just going to, you know, meditate it away or talk it away or whatever. We have to just pay attention to what's happening in the nervous system and hack into that or lower that or change that and really pattern interrupt it. That's how we get rid of the excess stress. Because if you have a mother-in-law, you're going to probably still have that mother-in-law, right? Or these things that trigger your nervous system until you get them to not be triggered by it are still going to persist. And we just sort of ignore that and then try all the stuff that doesn't work. And then we beat ourselves up for why we're so stressed. And it there is, I promise you, there's a better way. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I kind of knew before, but you really brought home, I thought, in your book, is that if you're suffering from stress today, it's not just those um, difficult colleagues or the deadlines or whatever it is. You're also suffering from the impact of stress in the past, perhaps. That stress is can stay in your body like you described your life when you were in L.A. And once you're, you've got all these stress impacts, it makes every new stressor kind of go overboard. So it's, it's, it's not just the things that happen today that we have to address. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely correct about that. So our brain, our brain in order to be efficient works with heuristics and templates, basically, it matches patterns. And so if, something reminds you of something else. And this is, by the way, this is not a conscious process. You don't have to know why. And, and people then try to use their consciousness, which is kind of like lifting you know, a 10-pound dumbbell with a pinky finger, right? Try to figure all this stuff out and think that if they figure it out, then it'll go away. But you don't, you do, you can spare yourself that, um, you know, that exercise. Um, because whatever is stressful right now is your brain has probably matched it to a template of something that happened before, unless it's something very sensory jarring. Like if there's an alarm, if this could be your first alarm you ever hear in your life and you're going to get stressed out because the sensory network is what actually toggles your stress switch up and down. Even if you know, uh, if someone says, hey, I'm going to put on a false alarm in a minute, don't worry. Uh, the alarm goes off. It's really loud. You're going to go into fight or flight. The whole purpose of survival is to bypass your thinking brain and toggle your stress switch up or down based on whatever's happening in your sensory environment. Okay, so that's the key of how we get it to go down. But um, whenever anything happens in your current life that's stressful, typically you can trace it back to something else that happened that created the stress in the first place. And if we do something called processing that, we can pattern interrupt it, then we can get a generalized effect and it won't anymore. So I'll give you an example of something that happened to me last week, um, I had a couple of pretty scary doctor's appointments and um, thankfully I'm fine, but my partner uh, didn't come with me. And I went into the appointments just really with a lot of reactivity uh, that I didn't need. And luckily I have, you know, the devices, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And I use those, but I thought, you know, this is interesting because I think cognitively I'm fine, but I'm going into this, you know, and I'm really in fight or flight here. Well, it went back to a memory of when I was married and um, I was in a foreign country and I had a vasovagal attack and my ex just didn't come with me and wasn't responsive when I called him in the hospital to come pick me up. And it was incredibly stressful because I was in um, 
a Middle Eastern country. I felt very unsafe. And that is what it went back to. So wow. when we have so, current... Oh, go ahead. Oh, so so the memory is, is not just something in your brain. It's something visceral. It's something that once you tap into it, it can change your whole the whole state of your body. And that's kind of what happened when you connected yeah, with and, it? Well, it was already happening. So this is the interesting thing, too. And this is what I really want people to know is that this is does not have to be conscious. When you notice that you're in a situation and you have a stomach ache, right? Um, or your chest starts to tighten up or your shoulders start to get tense. Something got triggered. You don't think about it first and then the body reaction happens and the stress happens. The stress happens and the body reaction happens. And then if you're not in total fight or flight, you can use, you know sometimes get to it and connect to it, but sometimes you can't. But the name of the game in that situation is to pattern interrupt that stress response because even if you don't know why, your body will then react differently to situations in the future. And this is actually the cure for PTSD. This is how we cure PTSD. And for people that don't have that, this is how we make sure that these things that start off as stressors in their life, if we can nip those in the bud and change the body's reactivity to it in that moment, it won't become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over their whole lives. All right. So now before we get into... Um... Uh, some of the therapies and, and including um, the touch points that you created and, and some other things. I, I just want to pause here and, and ask a question. In your book, one of the things I liked is that although you explained the complexity and you explained how so many things are uh, things you're not consciously aware of that can um, contribute to a hijacking, but what you said, and you had a section called what you can do. There are some things you can do, if, even if you don't have a therapy around, if you know, you're having a bad day and you suddenly feel yourself kind of losing it. What you suggested is that there's some steps you can take if you can kind of learn to notice as soon as possible. You talked about the four steps that can help you back away from kind of running amok in your brain. What are those steps? And those are things that people could start doing today if they started noticing, right? Yes, absolutely. So the these are steps aren't completely novel. You've probably heard similar things in the past. The key to, to using these steps is to know that they only work when on your stress switch, if you think of your switch as being like zero to 10, where zero is completely calm and 10 is completely in fight or flight or panicking, they really only work if your stress is below about a six. If in that moment you're in fight or flight, you will not have access to the conscious ability to use these tools. So that's one of the really big takeaways is using the right tools in the right moment when they're going to work. And when you have access to them, because the whole point of when you're really stressed out is your cognition, your higher order consciousness, anything non-essential for survival sh shuts down. So if you're somewhere around, you know, a four or five where you're feeling kind of stressed out, you're starting to feel pressure, um, those kinds of things, you, you want to be able to recognize your warning signs. And that's step one. Like, what are my warning signs that I'm getting 
stressed out and get to know yourself and be curious about that. Mine are that, you know, my voice changes. I start using words like, you know, always or never or, or even stupid, like, oh, this is so stupid, right? If I think that or say that to myself, that's my cue. Hey, you know, you're, you're getting intense about something, like try to slow it down a little bit. So what's your, what's your warning sign and where are you on stress switch? And if you're above about a three, you'll have a body sensation that goes with that stress. So you can check in with your body really quickly and be like, oh, my chest is tight. Okay, I'm definitely higher on the stress switch than I need to be. And so this, this little bit of, of insight can lower the stress switch a little bit or get you to step two, which is to ask yourself, you know, is this, is this really urgent, right? Do I really need to, is this really a big deal? You know, I've convinced myself, I don't know how many times, you know, I'm going to be late and creating time pressure for yourself and catastrophizing, you know, what would happen if you were really one or two or five minutes late to somewhere um, is really not, not as necessary as a lot of people, especially women, you know, put on themselves. So it's like, is this really an emergency? Do I really need to be feeling this right now? Um, and the answer is usually no, because unless someone's physically hurt and needs to go to the hospital, you're really probably not in a true emergency situation, right? And so creating that, just that pause and that reflection can help. And even someone else's emergency, right? If you've got somebody that's um, really in a different state as you are, it's also about like not, not meeting them where they are on their stress switch. So you want to look at if you're with someone and their stress switch is higher than a six, keeping yours low, and then you'll be able to help them bring theirs down typically. But if yours matches theirs and you both start to lose your conscious ability to problem solve, then it escalates and it's, you know, a volcanic eruption. And this is, we see this all the time in couples therapy. So you can just kind of step back as step two. And, you know, is this really urgent? Is this really going to be okay? Let, let me just get a little bit more, um, less intense about this and, you know, it's probably going to be okay. And then step three is, am I seeing everything? You know, am I, am I thinking rigidly about the situation? Um, you know, yesterday at the time of this recording, you know, Fed just raised their interest rates, right? And so um, I have a family member who works in the pool business, you know, and another family member's like, oh, you know, his business is going to go down. It's going to be, well, I don't know if that's the case, you know? Also, yeah. the builders are pretty busy around here. So when we're stressed, noticing our tendency to filter. And again, we're not consciously filtering. It's being done for us. Our brain does all kinds of wonderful things for us. So we have the space for consciousness and we're not just totally preoccupied with basic survival all day. But let me see how my brain is distorting things. It will always distort things in fight or flight. Is this really, um, am I seeing everything? Is there another alternative that I can think? Can I think more flexibly about this? And how can I create space between, you know, what I feel, what has to be done now, and, and what are really my, my actual options? And as you think about that, it's really important to know that if you have thought your stress was below a six out of 10, and it wasn't, you're not going to be able to do this. And then that's your cue to think, okay, I think I'm higher than I thought, right? And I need to do something that doesn't involve thinking to get myself out of this. Mm-hmm. 
So and that's and, when, and if you, like taking a break and, and doing exercise or leaving the room or not continuing the conversation, just kind of physically leaving, those kind of things might be what you turn to because you can't talk your way out of it. Yes. We sit, how many times do we lay in bed at night and our, you know, our, the, the, our sensory network chooses what we actually get to pay attention to. And during the day when we're all distracted, we don't know that these thoughts are running in the background. But when we're, you know, laying in bed at night, all of a sudden this barrage of, of thoughts and maybe even stress comes up and impairs our sleep at times, right? And so in yes. those moments, it's like if I try to think my way out of that, it doesn't work. I need a, something to interrupt that. And I can't usually solve my thinking on the level of thinking when I'm stressed out because my thoughts will be directly congruent to how stressed I am in that moment. I need to lower my nervous system stress first, and then my thoughts will magically change. Thoughts will automatically come online. It's like when you're stressed, it's just blocking access to your reasonable, optimistic thinking. And it's thinking that something's an emergency when it's not. You know, how many times have we just been so stressed out about things that we can't do in the moment, right? I can't fix what's going to happen with the interest rates in bed at night at, you know, midnight. And, and by the way, I got to let life unfold, right? It hasn't played out yeah, yet. Yeah. So I'm reacting with all this stress to something that isn't even happening. Well, I, I like how you described, um, what happens in our heads or what happens maybe in our brains when we go from one place to fight or flight. Uh, tell us about the fortune teller and the hag. I, I know it's a, it's a metaphor, but it really is a good description of what can happen to us and why we want to think about other ways to address ourselves when we're kind of taken over by the hag. Oh, sure. Before I do that, I just want to recap step four in that process because oh, there's one yes, more piece please. that's really important for people. And that's really oh. quickly that if you in that moment of stress have to decide something, it's a terrible moment to decide anything. So what, you know, if you can pause and decide later or make sure that your stress is relatively low when you make a decision, it's going to be a much better decision. So and, that's and step you can, four to see if you can pause. I, I think what you said uh, about being curious and noticing and kind of becoming aware, that's really important. So you can tell the difference. You can tell that you're beyond a six. Just if you kind of practice noticing and if sometimes you don't catch yourself, well, now you've learned what seven looks like. I mean, so so what's this change that happens from, uh, from you know, when you go beyond six, how does the hag appear? So this is, um, again, I'm going to, you know, blow some people's minds. Some people are not going to believe me, all this, but I, I promise you this is how it works. Um, uh -huh. from neuroscience and not just neuroscience as a buzzword, right? You know, I mean, I didn't just look at some YouTube videos and now I'm regurgitating this for you. This is bona fide neuroscience. Here's how it works. It does not work that you have a thought and then you have a feeling. Okay. It works that a very powerful network, way more powerful than your consciousness is dictating what you get to pay attention to, where your stress is at any moment, and your thoughts will be congruent with where you are on your stress switch scale. So if I'm having a conversation with my partner and I'm at a seven, right? The hag presents herself at about a you know five, six, seven. 
And if, if you think of it, you can think of it like kind of like a seesaw where, you know, you've got this, this wonderful, you know, optimistic, caring fortune teller on one side, and then this, you know, evil sort of pessimistic, nothing's going to go right, the world is doomed, hag on the other. And depending on where you are in your stress switch, it starts to shift. So we can't believe the hag in moments that we're stressed because our predictions will just be terrible. And we see this play out on a global scale in our, you know, market economy and um, economics and all of these things that when we have this collective sort of stress switch going up, you know, it's gloom and doom, it's dire, it's, it's terrible. And then if we go back and really plot out what happened based on the predictions, it's usually uh, very polarized because of what happens in our brains when we're stressed out. So this hag appears whenever we're stressed out. And she's not a good um, predictor of what's going to happen. And by the way, the, the, good, the good one isn't either. The fortune teller isn't really either because none of us can predict the future. But it's important to lower your stress first and then listen to the messages coming in because even though we can't predict the future, if we have to, if we're listening to the hag and thinking that's what's going to happen, we're, we're actually going to exacerbate our condition. We're not going to be able to be present. We're not going to be able to make good decisions. We're not going to be able to listen to people. All those things fly out the window. And I really don't care if the good fortune teller is wrong. I get to have all of those feelings about, hey, this might work out. And I get to be in a state where I can make good decisions and enjoy my life and know and trust that if something bad does happen that I didn't predict, I'm just going to be able to handle it. Um, because you have to handle things in the moment that they come anyway. And, you know, some people say, well, I don't want to set my expectations high because I don't want to be disappointed or I don't want to be hopeful and have my hopes crushed. And I'm like, well, but you actually, you know, you got all those good feelings of being hopeful. And um, even though that didn't work out and you handled it, like, would you have rather been miserable, like leading up to that and still had to handle the crappy thing that happened anyway? Like, I think that's bad policy. So, um, yeah. So, you know, well, you just want to pay attention to how your thoughts shift automatically and not trust them when you're in a polarized state. Okay. So now we get to that, that state and uh, where the hag has taken over, you're in fight or flight. Uh, you can't talk yourself out of it. It's adding to your stress and you might make mistakes. You invented the touch points, which is kind of a, a device based on therapies that are used for all kinds of trauma and PTSD and so forth. Tell us about what inspired the touch points and what they are and how they work. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a, an interesting journey for sure with this. I started consulting with some ex-military that were responding to the Ebola crisis in Africa, uh, in Monrovia. And I knew that there's a therapy called EMDR, which is one of the best trauma therapies. And when you deploy EMDR therapists to a war-torn country um, or after a, a terrible event happens, not only can they eradicate the post-traumatic stress disorder, but if something happens to the people that have had the treatment again, uh, less than half of them will get PTSD the second time. It actually acts like uh, it inoculates. We can inoculate a whole population from PTSD and they can get better and better. And, and it, it works because it's not just talk therapy. We're actually lowering the nervous system reactivity 
with sensory stimuli and something called bilateral stimulation. I won't get too into that, but I didn't invent the idea that alternating vibrations, and that's all this is, by the way, it's non-invasive, it's just vibrations. And when you get vibrations at a certain frequency, it will downgrade, your brain will automatically downgrade the stress response. It's the opposite of a fire alarm. Fire alarm is a sound, it's jarring, it'll put everyone into fight or flight. This is just the opposite. And it's because your sensory network is actually in control of your stress switch, not your thoughts. So if we go through a really stressful event and we can have the nervous system not react right afterwards, or we can desensitize it to that, it won't get stuck. We can prevent PTSD. We can do all of these things. So in knowing that, that it was going to be hard to get a lot of therapists, you know, cost wise, and no one wanted to really go to Africa um, during Ebola, it was actually just ending. It was pretty unsafe. Um, it was like, well, can I extract like a vitamin C out of an orange? You know, can I, can we take something from this therapy that seems to work so well and, and democratize, you know, the, the effects of this and give everybody access. And so I started doing EEG research. That's um, brain waves. You're measuring brain waves in real time on what these vibrations were doing because they'd been used for 30 years in EMDR therapy. So I didn't, it did not invent that. I um, co-founded a company that put them in wireless form so that we could give them access to everyone once we figured out that they were safe and what they were doing to people's brains in real time. And so um, that, you know, up until that point, they had just been used in therapy offices. And I'm like, why are we <laughs> confining this? This is cheap. It's a simple technology. It's This is like amazing. And if we can get kids who have trauma, you know, if we can, for the price of less than one therapy session, give them these and they can use them throughout their days, we can make somebody with, you know, like a foster child, let's say, who's just got tons and tons of, they're in fight or flight all day long and it changes their whole lives, right? It changes their health outcomes. It changes their longevity. They're more prone to drug addiction, all of these things, because not just because of their situation, it's because the brain is perpetually in fight or flight. We can hack into that with, you know, at a low cost and throughout their development, lower their stress switch whenever their stress switch goes off. It can change their whole lives. So I, um, that's kind of, you know, how I got started. And um, we still use them for everyone. So even in my clinics, I've got a couple clinics in Arizona and everybody that comes in, we have them use the technology in the first session. So, you know, cause what happens when you go to therapy, you just recall all this stuff from your life and you just sort of dump it out and it all gets yeah. activated and triggered. And then they go, okay, I'll see you next week for one hour, have a nice day. And every, you know, it's, it's completely jarring. We can, lower the stress in that first session and get people a therapeutic effect. And it's just profound, right? And so, and also coaches who don't have therapeutic training can add them to what they're doing with their clients. I mean, how many times do you have clients and they just, they're stuck on the same thing and they just have these triggers and they can't move past them. The thoughts are not the cure here. We have to get the nervous system to lower the reactivity. We have to get the stress switch down. We cannot do it on the level of thought. And so this is, these are tools to do that and to get people into more of an anti-inflammatory state to help aid their sleep if they can't sleep at night. I mean, really the key 
to life and to, you know, ending suffering, or at least having a lot less than you have now, is to be in a state of low on your stress switch scale as much as possible and whenever possible. And it makes us better human beings. Well, I, of course, did my due diligence. I didn't want to mention um, your touch points um, without at least trying them out a little bit. And I have no expertise in this at all, but I... I bought um, bought them from your website. It's cost less than two hundred dollars um, for a set. Which, uh, if you were, as you said, if you're going to therapy, you're going to pay more than that for an hour. And I haven't had an opportunity to use them in a um, a traumatic situation, but I've been just using them to relax, and I find them. Um, I actually have done a little meditation at the same time I'm using them. So I can't tell which is one thing and which is the other, but I found them quite relaxing. So so describe what they look like and how they work. Yeah, so they're basically, I mean, they're wearable technology. So they're two squares and you can put them on wristbands or you can take them off and just hold them in your hands or put them in your pockets or socks. As long as one's on one side and one's on the other side of your body, they're working. And they are alternating vibrations. There's a few different frequencies um, that we put in the in the units, and so there's ways to test and see what's the best frequency for you. Um, it's kind of like what music you like. You know, some may be calming to one person and not to the other. It's just how your brain is processing it. And you you literally we have data, uh, published data that shows a 62% reduction in stress in 30 seconds. And again, you know, you got to bypass consciousness. Everybody's like, well, what am I doing? What am I thinking about? And it's, it's not about that. It's about your body receiving a sensory input and what it does with that uh, signal. And every, your body is constantly taking in all of the sensory information and deciding what to do with it without your consciousness. And so this just adds a frequency that uh, seems to lower stress. Um, and it's the, the biggest stress reduction I could get of all the things that I tried. And, you know, I want to be clear because you're like, well, I wasn't really in a traumatic situation, but you don't have to be in a traumatic situation. We, we really want to hack into m- most of us that are, you know, have pretty good lives and high functioning and grew up pretty well. You know, we're really hovering at about between a three and a four most of the time, unless we're triggered. But is, but if you put them on, you may notice your shoulders drop or your stomach was a little not feeling so good or your chest was tight and now you're breathing more clearly. That's really just lowering the stress switch down. So you don't have to be at a 10 to put them on. If you're at a six and you put them on, you'll go down to about a three and you'll notice a shift. So a lot of people we were finding in these meditation classes couldn't get to a meditative state. It would actually jack their stress switch up higher because they would get frustrated with themselves and all, or a thought would come in their mind that they weren't paying attention to before and it was jarring, you know. And so they're kind of like training wheels for meditation. So if your stress switch is a little bit high and you put them on, it will lower it. And then you're in the nice state to get more out of your meditation. So we're really using them in everyday life to bring yourself back to homeostasis when you're a little bit too stressed out. You very kindly offered to actually uh, give a code, a, a, a discount code for any listeners if they want to try them out. And we'll put yes. that information on the uh, uh, 
information for the podcast, but I, I, um, I think they're very intriguing, and I, I, I love the way you've taken something that's being used in very difficult situations, and as you're saying, democratizing it, making it available for people to kind of, um, you know, try it on their own. Yeah, I mean, it's it, not everybody has access to expensive therapy, and it's a shame. And I think we owe it to ourselves and to everybody around us to, you know, be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And we all are, you know, pretty terrible when we're in fight or flight, not because we're terrible people, because our brain does not support us being kind and empathic and, you know, compassionate and helpful and all of those things. And that's just the human condition. So it really, it's not just for ourselves, but it's how we affect the world around us. And it can make us all better human beings. And if we can change that on a collective scale, um, it would just be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be. And boy, uh, life is life is better when we're not overtaken by stress. And there's so many stressors out there that I think every little bit helps. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for teaching me about this approach to... Um, dealing with stress and uh you know i i wish you well as you kind of continue to spread the word that you don't have to be um feeling as stressed as you are you know perhaps there's some things you can do about it absolutely and thank you so much for all of the work you do to make the world a better place i really appreciate you and it was wonderful to reconnect okay have a great day everybody Today we've been talking with neuropsychologist Amy Saren about how to tackle excess stress. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that one way to reduce your stress level is to practice noticing the instant a stressor hits, and then take a quick break, even if it's just a couple of deep breaths. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends.